Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, novels, and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I'm glad you're here for it. I get much pleasure from being a writing instructor. I'm also, of course, your lifestyle counselor. Here's a lifestyle tip. Life is too short to read a book that isn't doing its job, which is to keep you interested in it. A book that keeps us interested has some combination of a solid plot, probably good writing, and it may offer something new, maybe an unusual and exotic setting. Uh, the novel may have attractive or interesting characters, some aspect that keeps us reading. But what if after five or ten or fifty pages our attention wanders? We should quit the book. We do not owe the author one of our most precious assets, which is our time. If a novel isn't keeping us interested, we should put it aside. There are no good citizen points, no gold stars, no reward at all for forcing ourselves to read a book that doesn't keep us involved and interested. We don't owe the author anything. When reading, I finish about one in five novels that I begin. Yesterday, I started a novel where the first ten pages are two people having lunch at a restaurant talking about their love lives. Dull love lives. After ten pages, I said enough and put it aside for good. I read on a Kindle, and I download books from both the city and the county's public libraries which is, uh, I wouldn't be able to, to try and then discard so many novels were I purchasing them, as it would be prohibitively expensive. But with the Kindle and the public library digital downloads, I can try three or four or five new novels every week, and it doesn't cost me anything. I only want to read books that keep my interest, which can be anything from a modern novel to classic literature. I often, can't, I often can't tell in advance of beginning reading them whether I'll like them, so I give them a try. Some novels I, I don't get past the fifth page before calling up another novel on the Kindle. I'm not going to read a novel that isn't doing its job, which is to keep my attention. I always have 10 or 15 novels on digital hold at the library, uh, a certain number of a novel is licensed by the library from the publisher, digitally. And when enough readers have digitally returned it to the library, I'm notified by email, email that the book is available and I can now download it. How do I find all the novels, three or four or five a week? I go to Google and type in this at the search bar. I type in best novels of 2022 or best novels of 2014, or best science fiction novels, or best coming-of-age romances, whatever genre strikes my fancy at the moment. Goodreads has particularly good lists broken out by genres, and there are many other such lists online, and if some of the novels look interesting, I'll find them at the library and either digitally download them right then or add them to the digital holes, where they'll trickle in over the weeks. I know that my digital disposability of novels isn't as easy when reading printed books. It's, it's too expensive to run through so many novels. Uh, 
And that's one of the reasons I use a Kindle. I haven't read a printed book in six or seven years. I understand that there is a, a tactile pleasure in holding and reading a printed book, in turning the pages. Even the smell of a book is good. And they look good on a nightstand or coffee table or bookshelf. They're even fun to carry around. Uh, I understand that. But for me, the pleasures of a printed book, and, and there's much pleasure in them, are outweighed by the convenience of a Kindle. I, I know there is much, much room for disagreement on this topic. So the sum of it is, Life is too short to read a novel that, for whatever reason, isn't holding our interest. I received a nice email from Stacy in Alabama asking what my favorite all-time novels are. I, I try to make these podcasts not too self-referential, but the question got me to thinking, and I made a list, and I had a lot of fun doing so. Here are my favorite novels in, in no particular order. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. The Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien. Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. We Run the Tides by Vandella Vita. Billy Bathgate by E.L. Doctoral. Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. The Godfather by Mario Puzo. Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell. Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. A Painted House by John Grisham. Get Shorty by Elmore Leonard. Sag Harbor by Colson Whitehead. The Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth. East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters by Gene Shepard. This is a list that ranges widely over eras and genres and settings and plot, so I had to think, what's the common denominator? It's this. I like the main character. I want to be along with the main character to cheer him or her. These, these novels took me away from my life and put me somewhere else with wonderful characters. Want to have some fun? Make a list of your favorite novels, 10 or 15 or 20 of them. Is there a common denominator, uh, a fascinating character or a lovable character? Uh, do many of your favorite novels feature exotic settings or, or full-throttle action or, a, or a fiery romances? This common denominator of your favorite novels may give you a clue as to the kind of novel you might write or a clue as to what you might add to the novel you're writing that is already underway. I am always, always searching for new novels to read. If, if you are of a mind, please send me your list. I'll find some of them for my Kindle at the library. My e email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com.
let's talk more about plotting our novel. The novelist Michael Shera describes a story as a power struggle between equal forces. Each party must have sufficient power, Michael Shera says, that the reader is left in doubt as to the outcome. We may hope and think the heroine will triumph, but the enemy must represent a real and potent danger. If power is one-sided, there will be no suspense. Michael Shera says, the story's complications are attained by shifting the power back and forth from one to the other. And finally, at the end of the story, something will occur that permanently and irrevocably shifts the power to the heroine. And by power, I don't necessarily mean physical power. Physical power. It can be wisdom or knowledge or wealth or rank or beauty or moral power. And there are other sources of power. The novelist Stephen Fisher has said, structure is an art that conceals itself. Let's look at a time-tested structure a plotting structure called the checkmark. Actually, it's an upside-down checkmark. The upside-down checkmark uh, can be pictured on graph paper. The, hor the horizontal axis is time, and the vertical axis represents events. Uh, Cinderella is a, is a fairy tale that has been remarkably successful. Its origins are lost in time, but it is now told in books and movies and plays in one uh, form or another. Uh, until a while ago, I thought Cinderella was a Disney-invented story due to his uh, fabulous animated version of it. But that's not so. In one of the non-Disney earlier versions of Cinderella, one of the stepsisters cuts off her toes so her foot will fit into the slipper. That doesn't sound like Disney. Uh, Cinderella has been made for children and in many variations for adults. Let's chart, let's chart the story on the check mark, uh, keeping in mind that our discussion is of shifting power. As the story begins, we are presented with the essential conflict. We learn in a sentence or two that Cinderella's mother has died and her father has married a cruel woman with two harpy, preening, ugly daughters. Cinderella is forced to do all the dirtiest and hardest chores and, and she weeps among the cinders. Which side, the stepmother or Cinderella, has the power? Well, the, the stepmother does, as the story opens. What power does she have? She has the strength of evil, the daughter's, her daughter's ugliness. Ugliness is a powerful, powerful force in literature and in life. Uh, ugliness of, uh, as power, uh, the hunchback of Notre Dame, Frankenstein. The stepmother has the strength of numbers. She is assisted by her two daughters. So it's three against one. And, and she has parental authority. Those are her uh, sources of power. What power does Cinderella have? She has beauty and goodness. 
uh, in literature and in life, these are powerful. Uh, does any, anyone doubt beauty is power? Who in literature gets power from beauty? Scarlet, of course. Who gets it from goodness? Melanie Hamilton in Gone with the Wind. At the beginning of the story, the power is on the stepmother's side. Then something happens early in the story. An invitation arrives from the prince. All the ladies of the land are invited to a ball. Cinderella desperately wants to go. The invitation gives her that right. So the power shifts. The, on the check mark, we can write down invitation to a ball. But the stepmother takes the power back by the use of her parental authority, and she tells Cinderella that she can't go to the ball because she must get the stepmother and the stepsisters ready to go. The power shifts when the stepmother says, you can't go, using parental authority. Then the fairy godmother appears. Her magic is powerful, and she gives Cinderella a gown, glass slippers, and a coach with horses and footmen. The fairy godmother gives Cinderella power, the power of magic. But the magic isn't 100%. It has limits. It has qualifications. It'll only last until midnight. So that, uh, the, the qualifications on the, on the magic shifts the power again. If she doesn't leave by midnight, Cinderella will be exposed and, and defeated. Cinderella goes to the ball, and the prince falls in love with her. Love is a powerful force in literature. It's, it's more powerful than magic. The, the power shifts when the prince falls in love with Cinderella. In some versions of the story, the stepmother and the stepsisters are made to marvel at Cinderella's grace and beauty, and they don't recognize her at all. Then the Tower bell rings 12 times, and on the 12th ring, the magic quits. The, the power has shifted again. Cinderella flees the ballroom and run downs the, run, runs down the stairs in her rags, losing her slipper. Uh, the coaches become a pumpkin, and the horses are mice again. But the prince sends out a messenger with the glass slipper and an order from the prince's father that all ladies in the land must try on the slipper. Cinderella is given her rights by royal decree. Everyone must try the slipper. Rights equal, equal power. The power has shifted again on our check mark. Then... The reader expects triumph for Cinderella, but the stepmother declares that Cinderella won't try on the slipper and hides her away. Power shifts here, too, when the stepmother says, you may not. She's again exerted her power in a cruel way. Then Cinderella escapes and tries on the slipper, and it fits. The slipper fits. That's a power shift. This is the crisis action. Magic, love, and, and royalty have conquered evil, the power of numbers, and abused authority. At this point, the ending is, is wonderful and inevitable. At this point, nothing else can happen to deprive Cinderella of her desire. Nothing will be the same. The change is significant and permanent. Uh, 
The story now has falling action, the walking away from the fight, when the prince sweeps up Cinderella and gallops away to their wedding. This is the, the they live happily ever after moment, and it's the falling part of our upside-down checkmark. So on our, our checkmark on our piece of paper, we have the stepmother's uh, power on one side and Cinderella's power on the other, and we can plot it, back, the plot back and forth up the checkmark as the power shifts and shifts and shifts again until the crisis and then the falling checkmark down to the, uh, which is the happily ever after moment. Checkmark plotting might be useful for us. Put your hero on one side of the checkmark and, and uh, the antagonist on the other and see if the power shifts back and forth. Try to get the power to shift back and forth across the line of the checkmark. That is a good way to come up with that could be a good way to plot our novel, to set out the power shifts on our upside-down checkmark. What's the difference between a novel and a short story? What's the difference? A lot of folks think uh, that a short story and a novel are hugely different, but the distinction between the short story and the novel is simple. A short story is short, and a novel is long. Uh, and because a short story is short, it can waste no words. And usually it features only one point of view. It may recount only one central action and one major change in the life of the protagonist. A short story doesn't have the page space for digressions that don't directly affect the action. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe said a short story should strive to create, quote, the single effect, end quote, a single emotional impact that imparts a flash of understanding. People like short stories because they raise a single what-if question, while a novel may raise many. Uh, a short story is sharp and economic. How short and economical? Here is a six-word short story by Ernest Hemingway that he called his best work. Here it is. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. Uh, those six words are powerful. Uh, it's often helpful to sharpen our, our writing skills by trying a hand at short stories. It isn't such a, an investment of time as, as would be a novel. You want a good example of a powerful short story? Uh, try reading William Carlos Williams's story titled The Use of Force. William Carlos Williams was born in New Jersey in 1883. Uh, he's mostly known as a poet. Uh, after receiving his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania and after internship in New York and graduate study in pediatrics in Leipzig, he returned uh, in 1910 to a lifetime of poetry and medical practice in his hometown of Rutherford, New Jersey. Uh, the Use of Force is a well-known, highly regarded short story. It doesn't take long to read, but it's a powerful lesson in uh, really good writing. We can also test our checkmark plotting technique 
what is the power the physician has in the story and what is the power the uh, the girl has who may or may not have a life-threatening disease my cat jack has of course just jumped on my desk he likes to rub his chin on the corner of my laptop screen rubbing and rubbing until the laptop screen is flat on the desk not really useful in that position i'll put him on the ground if i ever write a book about cats i'm going to title it what cats think it'll be the thinnest book in publishing history the washington post publishes lists of neologisms they do it annually, and it's where readers are asked to supply alternative meanings for common words. Here are some of them. Coffee. Coffee is the person upon whom one coughs. Flabbergasted. Appalled over how much weight you have gained. Abdicate. To give up all hope of ever having a flat stomach. Esplanade to an attempt and explanation while drunk. Negligent describes a condition in which you absent-mindedly answer the door in your nightgown. Lymph, to walk with a lisp. Gargoyle, olive-flavored mouthwash. Balderdash, a rapidly receding hairline. Rectitude, rectitude, the formal dignified bearing adopted by proctologists. After some wandering, we have arrived at the end of this episode. Uh, I hope you'll be along for the next one. This is Jim Thayer. Until then, please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>